0: Hello, and welcome to the Haiku P podcast. I'm Patricia, and today I'm really happy to be joined on the podcast by Ben Gar and Alan Summers. I'm going to be chatting to Ben about ego in haiku, how to be less obvious about being in your haiku, because I want us to try and write without using I and my for our topic in March. I invited Alan along to the podcast because, as some of you might know, He has a new journal, Blue Outlier, and I thought it would be nice to learn a little bit more about it. More of that later. And of course, there's an update on the Renku, because we didn't have it last time. So off we go. First up, a chat with Ben. If you're a regular to the podcast, you'll have heard him before. He gave us a workshop on writing haiku in episode 15 of series 3, if you'd like to go back and listen to it. Or... You can watch it uncut on the Poetry P YouTube channel. Today, as I said, he's going to talk to us about one of my bugbears, taking the me out of your haiku. Let's have a listen. So today I'd like to welcome Ben Garb back to the Haiku P podcast. Last year, Ben and I were talking about one of my personal bugbears, I'm not too keen on haiku or senryu in which the poet is very obviously in the verse. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes it works. And I know practically all of our poetry or rather in all of our poetry, we are very much present. For example, here's one of mine, which was recently published in the inaugural issue of Alan Summers' journal, Blue Outlier, North Wind in the middle of nowhere, roasted coffee beans. It's about one of my bike rides through the woods. And of course I'm in the poem because who else is going to be smelling the coffee beans? But I could have written something like North Wind. In the middle of nowhere, I smell roasted coffee beans, which, well, I couldn't do that to myself. There's a quote from Michael Barrabo, which says, a haiku is like a finger pointing to the moon. If the finger is bejeweled, we no longer see the moon. Adding myself to the poem so obviously would just have hidden the moon. Anyway, I don't want to preempt what you're going to say, Ben. Welcome. <laughs> I'm going you. to shut up. Well, I'll do my best to shut up, but we may <laughs> well have a bit of a conversation. It's over to you.
1: Let's Thank start. you very much. And I, I do agree with you 100 percent that. And I like that analogy of looking at the have the bejeweled finger pointing at the moon. As soon as you see that, that you focus on the ring instead of what you're supposed to be looking at. And I think that that is. 100 percent true with haiku you can be present within your work and you are present within your work by the kinds of things that you do and share but the idea is okay so i've got removing yourself from haiku so i think one of the things to, to think about when you're writing haiku is that th- this this phrase i have up here i've seen it in many different versions of this from a lot of different people and a lot of different uh, introductions to anthologies and so on and so forth but essentially is a haiku isn't complete until someone other than the poet reads it. It's, it's one of those things that's both obvious and not obvious uh, because you know, when you're writing your poem, it's your poem. And it's, it's something that you're putting out there and that, that you want to share with the world. But the unique thing that happens with a haiku is that it's not your truth. You know, you're not telling your personal story. You're not talking about your own personal exact thing that happened in your life. You're, you're sharing a moment. You're sharing a, a moment about what it is to be human living in this world and how we interact with the planet, the universe, what everything around us and understanding that you're that just because you're done with it on the page doesn't mean that the poem is complete. It's just a nice thing to have tucked away because somebody else has to read that poem. And when they enter that moment, the poem gets transferred to them. The moment gets transferred to them and it becomes their moment. So a haiku poet needs to let go of their work, step in the background and get out of the way of the reader. And I often find myself thinking that I'm not done or I'm not doing my job as a haiku poet unless I'm not really present in the poem. So you, when you read one of my poems, hopefully you don't see me. And a little amusing story about that uh, is that the first time I met Francine Banworth was editing Frog Pond at the time, which is the uh, Journal of the Hiker Society of America, the very first time she met me, she had, en- she had envisioned me as this old retired Jewish man. And I met her, I was in my mid thirties, very, you know, not at all what she ex- expected me to look like. And she only built up that picture of me after having read multiple submissions of me over years. So it's just interesting to see, you know, like that, I obviously fooled her, you couldn't picture who I was based on the poems that I was submitting. So you need to step to let go of the poem, be in the background and get out of the way of the reader. And so how do you do that? And really the way I think about doing that is is about how you use language within your haiku. And I think of haiku language, uh, that there, there are three S's to haiku language. It's simple, It's succinct and it's suggestive. And I've got a poem of mine, which is turning into like the Swiss army knife of of poems of mine that I like to use to to talk about haiku and how it works, uh, that I'm gonna use here to kind of show how using language in that way and keeping the the idea that my personal experience is in the background of the poem to help illustrate that, that because I'm in the background and I'm using the language in this way, that that's why the poem works. And the poem is this, and you can find it in my book, Wishbones, a little frog on our sundial, passing time. Now this poem is a great illustration of haiku in general because you can see the two images in the cut, image line number one is the first image, line number two is the second image, and then the third line ties them together. But if we also talk about how it uses language in in simple, succinct and suggestive ways, we can kind of showcase that by using language in that way, it automatically strips me out of the poem and allows the reader to fill in the extra details. So one simple language. Now, if you look at this poem, there's nothing complicated about the language in the poem at all. Nothing fancy, no special tricks of, of swapping words around, no, no poetic tricks. It's very straightforward, very to the front. There's no, um, nothing footnoted, nothing to, nothing to prevent you from reading the poem, to push you away from the poem. It's very simple. You know, it's just a few words, obviously. And, and we're not talking about anything sort of really detailed and specific. It's very general. Now that goes into succinct language. So succinct language is getting just the right amount of description and detail of the poem to allow people to see what's going on. And then, so, so so they know what they're looking at. So the first line is the only description we have about the frog is that it's little, that's it. And there's absolutely no description about sundial. In fact, these things become suggestive things. Uh, Like the frog is a a Kigo, which designates a season. But the only thing you know about the frog is it's little. However, because you, you're approached with the, the first line is a little frog. You already have, your mind goes right to all of its image banks to figure out what does a little frog look like to you? Now, it has nothing to do with my little frog. Me as the person that actually saw, saw this moment, experienced it, could have chosen to go a different way about this and be very detailed about the type of frog it is, talk about the type of sundial, put it in a specific place, but none of that is there. Instead, you have the the reader figures out, well, I know what a frog looks like, and they can tell you in great detail about their little frog. Same thing with the sundial. The sundial, there's no description, so you know, you have to go into your own memory banks and figure out well, what does the sundial look like? Uh, is it brass? Is it ceramic? Is it terracotta? Is it on a pedestal? Is it on the ground? Is it on a wall? Is it in a park? Is it in, it, none of that is mentioned in the poem at all, but it's connected to a little frog. And it re, again, we're relying on the reader to complete the poem. And ultimately the poem itself is not about the frog specifically or about the sundial specifically, it's about passing time. And so you get, you have to get, by using simple, suggestive and, and, and succinct language, you're able to connect the moment, the feeling of passing time, which is what the little frog's doing, which is what's happening physically on the sundial, which is what the person experiencing the poem is doing by taking all this in. And it, it all wraps up in a way that you as the reader can go into great detail as to what's going on here, where this is taking place, what time of day it is, what the air feels like, what the scene feels like. And none of that has been provided by me, the poet. So if you would ask me, like, if you looked at this poem and you were saying, well, it was written by a retired Jewish man, sure. Or it was written by a, a, college, a college-age freshman girl. Okay, you know, it, from, from, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. The moment matters and that's the forefront. And that's what—that's the important part about a haiku is it's, it's what's the moment, what's happening, what does the reader see, what do they experience? And the moment you start to put in a little, a little ring, like pointing at the moon, if I started to say the little, some kind of specific tree frog or some, some sort of specific toad or something like that, then the reader has to figure out, well, what does that look like? Do I know what that looks like? Uh, and it kind of takes some of the fun out of engaging with the poem.
0: I do like talking to you, Ben, because you you often help me with something I've been working on, which, uh, <laughs> which you've done again. Thank you very much. I mean, you're absolutely right. You're not in there. You could be that little old retired Jewish guy, or you could be the, <laughs> the college freshman, or you could be, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. But mm-hmm. there is a poet there somewhere. Yes. And I don't need to know it's you. Interruption over, carry on. No.
1: <laughs> no, no, but that's exactly right. I mean, the thing is, the thing that we as poets need to do is we do the hard stuff to make this very, to make it look completely like this could be no other way to the reader. You know, there's a, a guitarist for the band U2 goes by the name of The Edge. And he often talks about when he's writing music, he likes, you know, when he seems to like riffs, guitar riffs come to him fully formed. It's like, they've always been there. And they're so obvious and that they could only go together a certain way. And I think that that's in a, in a big way of how our poems must come across is that, I mean, looking at this, it's there, there's no place. There's no room to tweak or to twick. It, it's, it's just as it is. And you experience it. And, and that's the poem. And we work hard to try to get that to make it look easy.
0: How do you arrive at this at this little poem? And it's really by hard work and practice.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I write a lot of bad poems. And and in fact, this poem didn't have the word little in it uh, at first uh, when I thought it was done. And I was submitting it around and it wasn't getting picked up by anybody. And I really believed in this poem. I'm like, this is a good poem. I don't know why it's not getting picked up. And so for any kind of poem like that that I submit that gets rejected, I, I, I revisit them. I keep looking at them and trying to figure out what's missing, what's wrong, why isn't this piece going somewhere? And it was the word little. Um, without that word little in the first line, it's just a frog. It's very bland. It's very like, who cares about a frog, but a little frog. Hmm. I can think of a little frog. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in a little frog. And it got picked up the very first time I submitted it after that. Yeah. And I read this, uh, you know, if I, if I go and do presentations or talks or whatever, and every time I read it, every time I read it, when I get to that third line, everybody, there's, there's like a collective smile or nods and people are like, oh, I see what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Yep. passing time, I get it. Okay, wow. And yeah. Now the, the idea of having yourself in a poem, I have two other examples that aren't mine. This next piece, well, basically the more you tie the poem to you, the less the moment belongs to the reader. However, here's, a, here's one from Carolyn Hall that I really love. From her book how to paint the Finch's song which is one of those poems that when i first encountered it it just one of those just i just drop everything and just bow because it's just so amazing and this one has the word i in it mm. and so it's frost moon i tell my daughter the truth very powerful poem i'm not a mother i'm not a father i don't have a daughter I'm not a daughter, but I've had a mother and father. Um, and, and, and it gets to what, what is the crux of what's going on in the poem here is that somebody close to you, it, it's somebody, uh, one human that's close to another human that has kept a secret. And at some point at this particular moment, you make that, that eye of the poem makes the decision to tell that other person the truth. Mm. And that's a universal thing that we've all experienced. The fact that it's an it's a, the the I and the daughter is just a, a suggestive language to say that there's a closeness of a relationship here. Yeah, it's not specific. The key to make what makes this poem work is that we never know what it is that person's going to tell.
0: But don't you think, because of the frost moon, that it's it's something that the daughter is not going to like necessarily?
1: Yes. Yes, I would agree. And that's the suggestiveness of the language, simple language, but it's suggesting not telling us specifically, but it's suggesting that whatever this is, it's going to be cold. It's Mm going to be difficult. And and then followed by, I tell my daughter the truth means you also think that, well, this it's been, this, this is not, this is not like a a split decision. This is not something recently that's happened. This is something that's fundamental. It's going to be a big thing yeah and we've all been in that situation whether we were the daughter or the I. and um again it uses simple succinct suggestive language to put us in this moment without telling us anything about what that truth is we have to as readers bring our truth to that moment so powerful
0: i'm glad you brought it to my attention because i think i would have passed that one over
1: because it said i tell my daughter yeah
0: because i get so annoyed by the I. Well, I've tried since our last conversation to be honest, mm-hmm. not to pass things over just because it's got the "i" in the, the poem. Like I said, I'm really pleased that you brought this one to my attention because it is a really splendid piece of work, isn't
1: it? Mm-hmm. But that's to say, that's not to say though, as an editor that reads tons of poems, that having those kind of hard rules isn't a bad thing for an editor. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, so don't. I mean, I think that I think your own rules and guidelines are are, are well served because there are plenty of ways to write this poem and have it be really bad. (laughs) (laughs) I've written them myself. (laughs) Now I've got one last example, and this is a, this is a golden oldie. And I think that if you haven't come across this poem in some translation, you're going to get it now, which is this classic one by Busan, which I have from the essential haiku uh, book by Robert Haas, which is the beautiful six words. I go, you stay to autumns. And this is a poem that it's one of the first that I really read back before I gave my life over to haiku. It just blew my mind. Uh, one, that it was you know, six words. And two, I, I, can, I, can, I remember exactly where I was when I was digesting this, this poem and, and, and how it blew my mind. Um, I was in college. I had a girlfriend, you know, and we were parting ways in autumn to go home for spring break. Okay. And you know, and I thought, oh sure, I go, you stay. This is the second year we're doing this, that's fine. But somewhere on the car ride home, it dawned on me that it wasn't just two autumns two years in a row. I go with my autumn, you stay with you, autumn. Wow, you know, it's like, holy cow. There's just, this is relativity. This is something that's like, we both as individuals have our own idea of what autumn is and as we part we're no longer sharing that autumn together. We now have our own separate autumns that we encounter and you know that's that's amazing. And I have no idea what Busan was thinking when he wrote this. <laughs> it's many hundred years before I was born in a completely different culture.
2: Yeah. And yet
1: this poem just rocks my world. You know it's just because he's not present, he's not telling me what the specifics are. I I get to live those specifics. And that to me, why this poem written so many years ago is still so relevant to me today and so fresh and still excites me, makes me wanna write poems and and experience these things.
0: And it's got your three S's. It's it's, it's simple, simple,
1: succinct, very, and uh, suggestive. And that really wraps up everything I wanted to say. Oh,
0: (laughs) thank you very much. Before you stop sharing, Go back, I think it was just before your Carolyn Hall Mm -hmm. um, slide, there was a quote that you went to. The more (laughs) you tie the poem to you, the less the moment belongs to the reader. And I guess that's what we're we're aiming for. It does belong to us, yes, but we're giving it to the reader. It's a present.
1: Yeah, Uh, we as poets give that reader permission to take time out of their life to experience something. Yeah. Um, and it may be something that that they've experienced before in their past, in the present, and they get to re-enter that it might be something they've never experienced before. It might be something that they they're familiar with, but maybe didn't have never taken the time to see to stop and look at before. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're giving them that that gift. And if we do it right, and do it well. And they enter into that conversation. They enter into that moment and they come out of it knowing a little bit more about what it is to be human. <laughs> no,
0: that's super. Thank you again, as always, Ben, for, mm-hmm. uh, for coming along and, and giving us this, or having a chat basically. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you very much, Ben.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. And, and by the way, uh those listening out there, I just wanted to say that, that there's, there's nothing better than getting that poem accepted by a journal because uh, it's very validating. It's awesome. But there's also a lot to be learned on the, the poems that they don't pick. And it's, it's always good to go back and look at those ones that didn't get picked, especially if you really liked them and try to figure out, well, why? Because sometimes it just takes, in my case, adding that one word and that poem is, you know, it's, you it, it can't be any other way now. <laughs> those don't just happen that you can't just as a poet, just sit around all day and just think, oh, I'm just going to write one poem when I'm inspired. And that one poem, that one draft is going to be perfect doesn't
0: work that way cheers ben thanks a lot (laughs) you're welcome i hope you enjoyed our chat and if you'd like to read the slides ben was using they'll be on the uncut chat i've put on the poetry p youtube channel if you'd like to read more of his work he does have two books one breath and wishbones and there'll be details in the show notes of the podcast. Now I'd like to add a little supplement to Ben's chat and for this I have to thank Richard Tice who so often sends me emails which improve my knowledge and I wanted to share some of the things he told me with you. I think Richard's going to write an essay on the topic and I hope he'll share it with me or at least he'll tell me where it is once it's published and I can share it with you. Anyway, let me give you some points that he made to me that I thought were fascinating, and, in some cases, my reply to them. Putting oneself into the haiku, or keeping oneself out of the haiku, was one of the main issues in the haiku wars of the 70s and 80s. Perhaps we can have a look at that in another episode of the podcast. I certainly don't want to start another war. I'm quite happy for the poet to be in the poem, but sometimes I think that we're too quick to use I or my in our haiku, and it's always worth having a second look at what you've written to see if you think it's appropriate. Richard points out that very often in the West we don't take into account the evolution of haiku. We don't make the distinction between eras of hoku and haiku. He suggests that if we did, we might find that there are reasons that hoku generally do not have the poet's presence in the poems. For example, the hoku was tied to the place of composition, which was usually a host's home and the area around it. So it could complement the host indirectly, but would not include the poet writing the hoku. And then there's the element of language. Now I can't comment on this, as Japanese is not one of my languages, but Richard has a much better idea. And he tells me that Japanese excludes the subject of a phrase or sentence if it's understood. So generally, personal pronouns are not used unless they're necessary to make clear the who or the whom in the statement. Thanks, Richard. I look forward to reading your essay and passing on the news of its publication to everyone else. Now let's have a listen to the Renku. It's called Golden Leaves Drifting, and for the first time we're going to write a 36-verse Renku. If you'd like to know how we're putting it together, you'll find it in Jane Reichel's book, Writing and Enjoying Haiku. It's on page 139. My fellow Renku storytellers this time are Scott Salenga, Kim Russell, Riem L. ashri and Lorraine A. Padden. Thank you to them. I'll read it through and you can see who wrote each verse in the show notes. Evening breeze, golden leaves drifting under streetlights. Night creatures explore their new world. Through crumbling soil, ink caps and dead man's fingers mushrooming. Dry yellow cornstalks, black feathers watch over. Harvested fields, rinsed in moonlight, their cycle complete. Autumn snow, muffled sounds of morning. Sunlight falling on fresh snow, the tips of orange leaves. A frosty fox licks the day into shape. White dappling the grey afternoon flurry. Head down, following a stranger's footprints. Snowflakes swirl. A unique journey began by chance. Ideas in motion. The wind in the trees. Early blossom. Yesterday's icicles break the silence. Waxing moon, the rhythm of a slow thaw. Pink daphnes pushing off frozen crystals, scent of change. The removal men trample the garden, still treasures emerge. Impacted earth erupts with purple promise, crocuses. The unceasing intention of buds. Shining wind, the luster of robin's egg blue. Pastel skies, reflecting in the bird bath. A child shrieks, blue tits swarm from the privet hedge. Amid new leaves, the sound of church bells. A woodpecker pecks at an old trunk. Conga drummer. Syncopation. To the day's longer beat. Becoming night. In the muddy hiking boots. Damp socks. I hope you're enjoying our Renku tale. And of course, if you'd like to join in next time, just let me know by email. It's very remiss of me, but I haven't reminded you that submissions are open until the 20th of February for haiku written with exaggerated perspective. If you're not sure what I mean, you can find out by listening to Deborah Piccologgi's presentation on the podcast episode 1 of this fourth series. Or you can go to the Poetry P YouTube channel and see her presentation and read the slides. I definitely recommend it. And before we go on, I must say some thank yous. Thank you for all your comments about the last episode. The one where we listened to your haiku on the topic of spring and autumn. I let my little family loose as community judges, and you were terribly kind about their comments. Lots of you wanted to know a little bit more about them. Had they studied English at university? Had they been to an Oxbridge college? Were they haiku professionals? Well, the answer to all those questions is a resounding no. Mark Gilbert made a point which hadn't occurred to me. He said it was very interesting to hear the haiku commentaries from non-haiku people. It was a little view into how the rest of the world looks at our poems. He's also suggested another project for Poetry P, but more of that in a different podcast, and I'm going to need a lot of help with it. Thank you to everyone who sent me submissions for the haiku interpretation of SF Flint's poem, Ogre. Craig Kittner did me the honour of guest editing the submissions. The successful haiku will be in the Poetry P. Journal, Spring Edition. Thanks, Craig, for working with me on this one. And some breaking news. The Winter 2020 edition of the journal is now available in print and Kindle formats via Amazon. Details in the show notes. Please have a look at your acceptance emails. They will always tell you which journal you will be featured in. And now a little chat with Alan Summers. It's only a short one this time, but don't worry, there will be more in the future. For those of you who don't know Alan, he's the president of the United Haiku and Tanker Society, which you'll be pleased to know is free to join. He's the co-founder of Call the Page, which offers courses in the various Japanese short forms. He's a Pushcart nominated poet He's a prolific writer of Japanese short form poetry. And of course, he is now the founder of the journal Blue Outlier. Let's find out a little bit about it. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Alan Summers for the very first time, and I hope it won't be the last. Welcome to the podcast, Alan. And
2: thank you for inviting me.
0: No problem at all. We were talking before Christmas about your new journal, the Blue Outlier Journal, but we couldn't do anything before Christmas because you wanted it to be a little bit of a surprise. Am I right?
2: Yes. It was more of a shock because Jay Friedenberg had posted something on the Hiker Society of America and was saying, well, oh, what are you looking at? And I forgot I had not told her. Oops. But it was Christmas morning. I mean, I had to eventually release it and she, she now knows why I was nodding off so much throughout the rest of Christmas. <laughs> but I needed, I needed to do something for, partly for myself, just a, upbeat because we had the COVID and we had all the other yes. um, related nonsense going on. And also, you know, people needed an uplift. I mean, one of our, um, our Call of the Page people, for instance, is recovering from COVID and has this long COVID and her husband has got it. Wow. It was really important That does have a a fun thing to open on Christmas Eve, or in some time zones it was Christmas morning.
0: Yes. That was where it came from then.
2: It was multiple reasons. One is um, one of our Call of the Page poets was having things regularly rejected that I said, if I had a journal, again, because I, I have found, I have been a founder of other journals in the past, I would have nabbed that in seconds. Yeah. And what happened is eventually, thank goodness, um, a good quality print journal, because there's always another one you can try, took it. And I thought, well, I might well tell a story about it. The next Hiker issue is, is in 2022 because the journal is doing lots of different things through this year. Oh, okay. Was in the name, Outlier.
0: Okay, well, that sort of brings me on to the next, next question, really. What was the plan?
2: It's all planned out. It only changed in so much as more people submitted than I expected. I thought first 12 submissions, I thought, wow, I'd be happy just bringing out a journal with just 12 poems because they were great and it would be a bit different. But things changed. But also um, because I was on a a haiku Zoom with some British poets, I thought, well, they don't, don't normally get the chance or opportunity to get published more widely but I contacted them after and that that was about 38 poets.
0: Okay so your numbers were going up all the time.
2: Yeah and I thought it was important to get some of them in and I had a lot of first-timers as well not just for mm-hmm. other nationalities that had have never written haiku before and I wanted to showcase them and, and enable them and some were just starting out And then word of mouth, I mean, the North Carolina Hygge Society. And I had someone, one of my biggest heroes in Hygge, Lennard Demore. He submitted, he's such an amazing person, and he brought out the Million Man March book from uh, Redmond Press quite a while back, and I, I got that as soon as that was out. So lots of, there was lots of exciting things that happened. It was not just an ordinary journal, and it was never, ever going to be. There's so many stories behind those about 260 poems.
0: One thing I was slightly puzzled by, how how are you spreading the word?
2: I didn't feel that I needed to over-publicise it, but setting okay. aside Facebook where I just had little teasers um, on my profile page and... If no one didn't actually bother to look at my profile page, then hopefully someone who did would tell them. Mm
1: -hmm. And, of course,
2: some people on Facebook are also on other social media platforms. So it got advertised on on Twitter. Uh, Sandra Simpson, who has the New Zealand Poetry Society haiku section, she publicised it. Mm -hmm. I I put it onto the Haiku Foundation announcements section. And I probably put it in other places. And, and word of mouth, I mean, I didn't know about the North Carolina Hiker Association. So I had to ask Lenard, how did you know? Because you're not a social media person. No, <laughs> He's a proper page poet, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, although he's doing something with the Nick Vigilio Association on the internet.
0: Oh, actually, yes, I'd seen that. I knew I knew he, he was doing something, but now he reminded me what it was. Yes.
2: So... And, and, and they got excited as well about the project. The house they built at Bort, which was Nick Vigilio's that's a writing centre, and that's to promote what we do as well, literacy through haiku.
0: You want haibun as well, or you're, you're featuring haibun as well?
2: Well, I, yes, I originally asked for haiku tanker and haibun if it was very short. Right. Because I didn't want anything long for this particular issue. And then I, I didn't advertise the others as much. So it's quite nice that there's just a few, two or three Highburn and four or five Tanker, and there's the form called Tarita, which is a title-less poem over, I think, five lines, I think it is. Well, it did get round. People got excited because they know I'm supportive and quirky. True. <laughs> you know, <laughs> friendly and eccentric. But I, I do like to support the genre as, as well as all the poets. So issue two, I'm not as worried. But I've got a, a, a blog and there's going to be no deadline as such. And there are some special treats, but I can't say too much. What I can say is I'll have at least one special co-editor as a guest. There's lots of nice uh, surprises in each, each issue that I have planned out. So the announcement might come out... In March at some point but I can't say middle beginning or end.
0: So no deadlines no particular topics you you, you'll look at things as they come to you. How should people send you work?
2: The email will be up on on the blog.
0: I have to say I love the artwork on the the cover of the inaugural issue that was that was absolutely beautiful wasn't it?
2: Yes well she's an amazing person we've known her for 20 years I didn't I think she would go to the trouble of putting the, the, the journal's title and the issue number oh. on the artwork.
0: Um, w- one last question while, while we're talking about the, the journal. Do you have any pet peeves when you're editing? Is there something that automatically would go in the reject pile or how are you working?
2: No one got rejected. Okay. I might have to do things differently for issue two where it become obvious why but I will hasten to say that when I was, for instance, Hibern editor for Blythe Spirit, I was part of the panel of editors, I got more lovely emails from people that I had rejected than anyone that had work accepted, which is quite a <laughs> No, No pet peeves. I didn't want anything generic. I wanted it to be something that I felt I could let the people in my street read it wouldn't frighten them. It would just make them happy. I just get excited if someone submits work.
0: You've sent me the, the blog site, the address for it, hmm. and I'll put that in the show notes so that people can have a look yeah. at what you've done already. From what you've said, they can follow the links from there to get in touch with you if they want to submit. Yes, and all the details them.
2: are on the, um, the PDF that they can download.
0: So thank you, Alan. All the details will be on the show notes. I'm looking forward to issue two. If you receive the first issue, do you automatically receive the second, or how will how will that work?
2: They, they can just um, contact me. I mean, I'm I'm friendly and approachable. I did have nearly 500 emails. It will all work out, and it won't be it won't be the same because it's an outlier. It cannot mm-hmm. be the same. So a
0: surprise. Well, I'll, I'll make sure everyone's got all the information on the show notes, so they can find you and maybe even submit to That would be good. And I look forward to following it up and seeing the next outlier, blue outlier, in maybe March.
2: Certainly I will start mentioning it in March. (laughs) (laughs) Good.
0: I'll I'll look out for all the little clues left along the way. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Alan. That was great. Thanks. Well, now, that's it for today. Thanks to Ben for his workshop. To Alan for coming along and telling us about Blue Outlier. To my Renku partners. To Richard for all the information he sends me. And in fact, I forgot to tell you. He suggested a blog which I'm really enjoying. It's called Blue Willow Haiku World. By Faye Ayoyagi Apologies to Faye. One day, a day I very much look forward to, I'll get to talk to you and you can instruct me how to say your name properly. Anyway, in her blog, details of which are on the show notes, Faye brings us some contemporary Japanese haiku, which she very kindly translates for us. Thank you, Faye. And thank you all for coming along to listen to today's podcast. It's lovely to be with you, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing. Don't forget that I'm currently accepting email submissions for haiku written with exaggerated perspective, until the 20th of February. So until we meet for our next podcast, Humorous Haiku, keep writing! If I've forgotten anything, or something's missing from the show notes, just email me, and I'll put it right. Ciao!